wanted to talk tonight about how we unenlighten ourselves. Normally we think of enlightenment as something that may happen in the future, something that we may be making effort to get to. Maybe something that we feel like we have to sort of up our game, improve ourselves some way to make ourselves eligible, eligible to become grace-prone for awakening. But holding it as something that isn't present now, but may be present in the future. In other words, we see it as somehow being coming from a place of lack. It's not here now, but I hope to have this experience at some point in the future that will fill this sense of lack. However, we might describe it. We might describe it as a longing, longing to be some higher state than whatever our state happens to be now. The actuality of it is that it's not an experience and it's not a state. So in uh, 17th century Japan, uh, Zen was prominent, Zen Buddhism, and there was a Zen master at that time. Um, his name was Bankei, B-A-N-K-E-I, um, who was quite popular and attracted large audiences. And his teaching was very singular. And his teaching was, um, you are the unborn. So what to understand what he meant by the unborn, we sort of have to look at what we mean by being born. Yes. So being born means coming into form, right? You know, baby is obviously born into this life. So we have the birth, um, a certain lifespan, and at some point, uh, uh, a cessation, uh, a death, an ending of that lifespan. And so everything that comes into form, you know, whether it's a human or a, a bird or a mosquito or the sun or a mountain has lifespans of different durations, of course, but they're all characterized by a certain um, birth, a certain duration, a certain form, a certain size, a certain shape, a certain flavor, a certain color. And we can, by the same definition, we can look at thoughts and feelings which we normally don't consider as objects, um, but they are also part of this world of form, right? They have a duration, a thought has a duration, has a certain flavor made up of certain words, certain characters, um, certain intensity. <laughs> so it has, it has a form, feelings the same, sensations same. Right, so we can look at anything that exists within this world of form. In other words, anything that we can see, hear, taste, touch, feel, think. 
anything that we can perceive in that way is of the world of form. Therefore, is born into existence at some point. A thought arises at a certain point, has a certain lifespan, then recedes in favor of another thought. The lifespan, birth, life, death. Right. So that's that's what we mean by born, born into existence, born into the world of form. And so, what does Banke mean by the unborn? That which doesn't come into the world of form doesn't come into existence in that same sense. Never, never takes on the attributes of form. Mm -hmm. So there's only one thing that qualifies as the unborn. And that's just this capacity to notice, to be aware, to be conscious of, um, you might call it spirit if you want. Banke calls it the unborn. That innate life force that is present in all sentient beings, including all humans, um, already from the get-go. We don't have to create it. We don't have to attain it. We don't have to be worthy of it. We don't have to meditate our way there. We don't have to understand it. We just have to recognize it. And the good news is that it's already happening. It's already what is present for everything that happens in your life. It's that capacity to be knowingly present for whatever's happening. So that's what he means by the unborn. And it it sort of turns the whole idea of of questing for enlightenment on its head. Because as, as I said from the start, we tend to think of enlightenment as distant, as something that we have to work towards, and that some at some later point it may be revealed to us, but it's not present now. And he he uh, Banke just turns that completely on his head and says, you've been enlightened since birth, probably before. Or we can just talk about this lifetime. As consciousness, present for this body-mind form that we were blessed with, And so Banke sees that innate consciousness, that innate capacity that we all have in equal measure. He sees that as the fundamental state of enlightenment. So then the question is, well, <laughs> it doesn't feel like that. But the question then is, well, if that is true, if the enlightenment is there from the beginning, never absent, always present, without having to earn it or be worthy of it, 
Then the question is, well, what am I doing to prevent me from seeing that? It's a good question, right? So that's the question. What am I doing to unenlighten my innate sense of Buddha nature? Bhante called it the unborn. So he sees that as a very fluid thing. It's not um, uh, It's not like a, a one-time seeing. It could be, of course, but very rare. But he sees it more as a moment-to-moment um, -a -moment thing, like we might be enlightened at one moment. In other words, um, resting in our innate sense of being, quiet. I mean, the mind has to be quiet, but just resting, knowing oneself to be that. He says, Buddha mind, <laughs> that's it, that's it. And uh, then we might get caught up in something that we feel like we need to um, insert our opinion, decide who's right or wrong, how things should be or shouldn't be, um, you know, how the world should be, how I should be, how the other person should be, etc. And that um, belief thought pulls us out of enlightenment. Not permanently, it's not like a mortal sin, or it's just like we um, get pulled out of our fundamental nature. Or we don't know how long, maybe a few minutes, maybe a few hours, maybe the rest of our life, we don't know. And then for whatever reason, this innate sense of the unborn, our innate Buddha nature um, might, might bring us back to um, awareness of what we truly are. And then we come back and rest there. Beautiful. So he sees it as a very fluid thing. And um, it just to, it's it a very sort of plain spoken, practical um, Zen teacher, not, not obscure in any way. Probably the least obscuring Zen teacher you'll ever run into. He didn't use koans. He didn't quote Buddhist scripture. He just pointed over and over again to this unborn nature that is already fully complete in all of us. And just directing our attention back to that. And the, an example that he used that was very um, basic, he said, you can be sitting here listening to me talk, and if a dog happens to bark out of sight in the distance um, without any thought whatsoever, you know immediately that it was a dog barking. You, you didn't have to wonder whether it was really a bell or a dog or a bird. or You, did, you just knew immediately without any thought instantaneously that a dog's barking, right? Even though you weren't waiting to hear a dog bark, you were listening to the talk, but you could, that unborn nature was receptive to the degree that anything that arose within that 
field of awareness would be perceived. So very, very simple, very direct. Um, we also had an, another example of sort of the fluid nature of this unborn beingness. And he used the example of a woman just um, sitting in her house by herself, uh, sewing and um, contented. You know, thoughts may or may not be happening, but she wasn't concerned, distracted by them. She was focused on her sewing, contented to do that. Fully residing in her unborn nature, true self. And then um, a neighbor walks in and has a story um, and is upset about something. And um, this woman at first remains with her sewing. She hears the words, of course, but she's not drawn into the drama of it. You know, she's present for the words, hears them, but remains um, firmly seated in her own beingness, still enlightened. <laughs> And then at some point, there's something in the neighbor story that's so compelling that this woman gets drawn in. Suddenly, she has an opinion. Um, she has something vested. She wants to make a point. And um, moments later, she realizes that she's been pulled into the drama. <laughs> the equanimity that and contentment that she was experiencing just moments before is lost. Unenlightened. <laughs> and then she might recognize, okay, I've gotten caught in this um, drama. I've gotten upset by it. And, um, you know, I, I regret having done that, but that's what happened. And so in this still mental activity of loss and regret. You know, I still can't quite find my way back home. Not forever, but it might take a little while to settle back down long enough to recognize that what is always present is still present. So just from this very simple story, perhaps we can see just on a day-to-day -day basis, um, how we unenlighten ourselves. There might be moments of peace, um, tranquility, the mind may be busy or not, but if we're not, uh, if we're attentive enough that we are not hooked by whatever that thought process might be, then it's just background noise. And we can remain firmly present to what's really happening. And the more we can become familiar with functioning from and as that unborn nature, um, the more we can remain in that space, even when conversation is happening, even when there's traffic, even when, um, you know, more difficult situations are happening and so on. So it's really sort of seeing this idea of awakening or enlightenment, not as, as a future event, 
not as a particular experience, but just as a day-to-day movement where we um, find ourselves resting as that awareness that many of us have begun to recognize. And then sometimes we get caught up. And I don't see being caught up in something that takes us for a ride. I don't see that as a bad thing. I see it as a way of um, clarifying, refining, tempering our understanding. Um, Because the mind will do that. The mind will find any way it can to sort of bring us back into its domain and away from this sense of awareness. And we have to give it its due. It's good at that. It knows us well. It knows us better than we know ourselves. So um, it is an adversary, but it is an adversary that is helpful because it, like I say, refines our understanding. Every time we get pulled away, we get another chance to see, oh, okay, that's that that was the hook. <laughs> that, that was what managed to pull us back into into suffering. So in in Buddhism, they have a a term they call the three poisons. Three poisons are just things that pull us out of that unborn nature. And the three poisons are greed, anger, and delusion. When we hear these words, you shouldn't interpret them as narrow categories. (laughs) They're broad categories, as broad as you can possibly imagine. But greed, you know, grasping, you know, the idea of increasing for my benefit, anger we're familiar with, but, you know, all the flavors of it, you know, resentment, hatred, unforgiveness, etc. And delusion is, you know, ideas, beliefs, fascination with our mind, believing that the mind will serve up ultimate answers for us and so on. So these are three very general ways that we can get hooked, pulled away from our innate unborn Buddha mind, whatever you want to call it. Right, that which is already present, already complete, don't have to earn it, don't have to create it, don't have to get to a higher state to experience it. And it's just our innate, amazing, mysterious, ever-present capacity to be present for whatever's happening. Make sense?